uh, get all angry like Jesus. Let's celebrate a little bit first. We got the teens back from spending a week in the Appalachians in Maytown, Kentucky, serving. Appreciate their hard efforts down there, making a difference for Jesus. We're celebrating our creative arts minister, Ben Spencer. It's his 10-year anniversary on staff this weekend. Appreciate the job that he's been doing all these years and, and helping us get closer to God as well. And we're celebrating something I thought I would never see in my lifetime, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, which is just unbelievable. Something we have been working for, we've been praying for this for decades, from the time, at least I can remember as a teenager, we've been trying to get this overturned, and uh, finally, we're heading in the right direction again. Of course, this means, you know, it's still, it just goes back to the states now, and everybody gets to vote on it, but, you know, you really can't vote on the value of human life. God has created each person in his image, in the womb from then on, so we'll continue to pray and uh, work for everyone to recognize the sanctity and value of human life. But man, what a day to rejoice. What a great weekend. Welcome if you're a guest with us. Uh, glad you're here. If you're watching online, hopefully you can join us in person sometime. We'd love to see you. Uh, I don't know where you are in your spiritual walk, how far along you are in that journey, but I'll bet we have a lot more in common than you probably think we do, because one of the things is we all get mad, we get upset from time to time. Even Jesus, as you saw in the video. When's the last time uh, you got triggered by something, that somebody really pushed your buttons and you just went off? Well, we all get upset. So Jesus goes into the temple area, sees that it has been turned into a place of commercialization and corruption. It's supposed to be a place of prayer and worship. And he just goes off and people are, are shocked by that because we tend to think of Jesus as kind of mild and meek, uh, passive, even sissified. That's the image people have of Jesus. So this is, this is really seeing another side of him that they, they didn't really know was out there. A lot of people actually think Jesus sinned in this experience. Over a third of Americans think Jesus was not sinless, as Scripture says, and they often will point to him going into the temple and getting angry because they, they tend to think that just anger itself is sinful, or at least his hostile response, maybe even a violent response that Jesus was in the wrong about this. How can Scripture say Jesus was without sin and yet he got so angry like that? Well, I can tell you why. Because Scripture never says anger is a sin. Anger is just an emotion. Nothing wrong with feeling something. It's what you do with it. It's what you're responding to and how you respond. How do you express it? In the first two chapters of John, we are seeing Jesus revealed. First, his identity was revealed as being God in the flesh, the Word, the Creator. We saw His mission revealed as Messiah, the Lamb of God, as a substitutional sacrifice, right? As, as King. Last week we saw His glory revealed in performing miracles, the first one, water to wine. And now we're seeing His authority revealed. And He will again point to a sign. He will foretell the biggest sign of all, and that will be the resurrection. So when we left Jesus last week in, uh, in John's Gospel, he was in the northern part of Israel called Galilee. That was kind of his home base area. Uh, he was uh, at Cana doing that water-to-wine miracle, and after that he's Capernaum area up there. He's hanging out with his mom and his brothers and his disciples. And yes, Jesus did have half-brothers. Uh, Mary did not remain perpetually a virgin, as some believe she was. He had half-brothers, you know, same mom, different dad, of course. Um, but when they're up there in, in that northern section, 
they decide that they're going to head down to the southern section, which is called Judea. They're going to head to Jerusalem, the capital, where the annual festival of Passover is being celebrated. That was the biggest event of the year in the Jewish calendar, when everybody would gather to celebrate what made them a nation, how they had come out of Egyptian slavery, how they had been delivered from the plague of the angel of death, that it had passed over their homes as they had spread the blood of the sacrificial lamb on their doorposts. Jesus, of course, infuses all that with new meaning, that he becomes our sacrificial Passover lamb who spares our lives. But every Jewish man was required to go to Passover if he lived within a reasonable distance. So everybody is in Jerusalem. From the elite scholars to the religious leaders to just all the common folk, they're there at the same time Jesus was because it was important to go to the temple. That was the center. That was the heart of their Jewish faith. It's where all the ceremonies took place and all the sacrifices took place. So the original temple had been there. Well, it really, the original one goes back a thousand years. King Solomon built that one. Um, but it was destroyed about 400 years after it was built by the Babylonians. God brought judgment on the nation. All the Jewish people were exiled into other nations. And that's when they came up with the idea of synagogues. You know, prior to that, they all went to Jerusalem to the temple. But since there's no temple and they can't go there anyway, they have these little local congregational units called synagogues. Pretty much what churches are today. We model churches after the synagogue. But when they were allowed to return to the Holy Land, they began rebuilding a second temple. Not as grand and glorious as the first, but still a new temple. So I want to put it up on the screen for you so you can see the layout of the temple. So this is about 500 years before Christ. This was started. About 20 years before Christ, this second temple began to be renovated and expanded by King Herod. So that's why this is called Herod's temple. Now you can see the inner court there where the actual temple building is. Uh, that was the court of the Jewish people. Only Jews could go to that inner section. That big outer section is acres and acres of land called the Gentile courts. That's where the non-Jewish people could go. They couldn't go in the inner side. That's where Jesus shows up on this day on the outer courts of the Gentiles where he finds all the money changers and the merchants doing business. Now, I want to clear something up as well about this. If you're familiar with the other three Gospels, we've called them the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they all were kind of written close to one another, and they cover a lot of the same material. They overlap on some things. John's Gospel is different because he wrote much later than they did, and so he supplements a lot of material. He doesn't repeat a lot. He supplements a lot of what they didn't have. So the other three Gospels have this cleansing of the temple at the end of Jesus' ministry, like in his final week. John, though, has the cleansing of the temple at the beginning of his ministry. What's going on? Is John just getting things out of order here? Or were there actually two cleansings? Well, it seems to be there were two. Because John describes this one differently than the other one. Uh, why is John mentioning this one and the other three don't? Well, these three guys uh, apparently didn't see the need to focus on two th things happening. They just focused on like the bigger deal one at the end, the, the cleansing of the temple that got Jesus arrested a few days later. They don't cover the first part of Jesus' ministry very much, his time down in the south in Judea. John does. That's what he supplements. And he points out, Jesus already did this three years before that. He was making enemies from the very beginning, but he doesn't get arrested at the beginning. Why? Well, 
he's got supernatural protection. It just wasn't his time to die yet, right? Remember when he was at his hometown synagogue in Nazareth and he said some things that ticked people off and they, they grabbed him and he took him outside of town up to the edge of a cliff and they're going to throw Jesus off, but he just walks on through. Like, how did he pull that off? Supernatural protection. It wasn't his time to die yet. And on top of that, the crowd would have loved what Jesus was doing, kicking out the money changers and the merchants. So I'm sure the religious leaders were pretty intimidated and it would be too risky to arrest Jesus at this time. Why would the crowds like this? Because they didn't like the merchants and the money changers. Uh, it, he was standing up for them, for, even for the Gentiles. All these guys had come into the temple area, which was supposed to be this nice, quiet place of prayer and worship, and they turned it into this noisy market and all the animals making a racket and the merchants committing a racket. They're making a racket off religion, ripping people off. We'll, we'll look at that, but we're going to see how this applies to us today because it's still going on. So our big idea is to cleanse the church of commercialization and corruption. I'm talking capital C church, right? The universal church, not just this local congregation here, but we always have to be on guard against this because it can happen. We understand our church building is not the temple like in the Old Testament. It's not like God lives in this building like he did in the Jerusalem temple. Symbolically, people would go there to get close to God. We got a nice couple buildings here, downriver. Uh, but these buildings are not the temple. We are the temple. The Holy Spirit lives in us. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, Don't you know that your, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? God lives in you, individually and Corporately, collectively. He also says in 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you, plural, y'all, are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Okay, so we're the temple. What does that mean about this building we're in? Is this a sacred building? Well, yes and no. Again, we're the church, but we have dedicated this building for the Lord's purposes. At Allen Park, uh, we, we've dedicated that building for the Lord's purposes too. Uh, we, but we use it for other things. Like at Allen Park, we have a gym that we rent out to the community. We don't do it to make money, we just do it to cover costs and custodians. Here at this facility, you're sitting on top of a building that has Bible verses and prayers all under your feet before we put the flooring down. We dedicate it to the Lord. But we also have birthday parties here, we have grad parties here. Uh, we um, have had free festivals, you know, carnivals for kids. Every week we open up our food pantry, give out free food to the community. Every week we do hot, free meals for the community. Uh, we have in here each week uh, an organization called STEP, made up of special needs folks, and they come in and hang out and play games and watch movies and have a good time. So we've got these facilities and we're grateful for them, they're nice, we want to take care of them, but we don't reverence the building. You're never going to hear me talking about this room you're in being the sanctuary. It's not. I'm not going to talk to you about coming to the altar. There is no altar. The cross was the altar. I'm not going to talk about all the other religious furnishings that the Old Testament temple had. We don't need those anymore. You do not have to travel to Jerusalem and stick your prayer note in the wailing wall to get close to God. It's not about a place. It's about a person. It's Jesus living within you. So what we don't want to see happen to 
our church or the church is that it becomes a commercial enterprise to make money. Isn't that one of the truth, one of the biggest gripes people have against the church is that all they want is your money. And it's hard to blame them sometimes when you see all the high-profile TV preachers begging for money so they can build their mansions and buy their jet planes. It's ridiculous. Or when you see the extravagance of some church properties, uh, you, you, you can see why people are suspicious and don't trust churches. Jesus was zealous about this kind of stuff. And he wanted to protect God's house. He was zealous for the house of God. See, the thing is, it would have been okay for the merchants and money changers to do their business outside of the temple grounds because they're actually providing a very helpful service to the travelers, to the pilgrims coming in from all over Israel. Why? Because the law required that they bring animal sacrifices. Well, can you imagine living miles and miles away and you got all this herds and stuff and now you got to gather up all the animals and you got to drive them for miles to get to Jerusalem? Much better to be able to just sell some animals at home, get some coins, and take the coins to Jerusalem and give the coins into the temple treasury. Problem with that would be, though, sometimes is the coins were unacceptable because they would be maybe foreign coins or they would be pagan coins. They'd have the emperor's image on them. And so they could come and exchange those coins for acceptable coins that could go into the temple offering. So what Jesus is upset about is that that's going on in the temple, that they're making money in the temple like that, because it's not like a free service. They're charging for that to be done. And it seems to be even more than that, because the second time he cleanses the temple, he says, you've turned it into a den of thieves. So it looks like they're actually stealing from God's people by overcharging them through their dishonest practices. You know, these exorbitant service charges for their fees. And beyond that, you would probably have this racket going on where people would bring their animals, they're supposed to be perfect, and the priest would look at it and go, yeah, you know, it's not quite perfect. I see a little flaw here or there, probably didn't exist. But that way they could say, we can't use your animal. You're going to have to buy another animal from one of our approved dealers at a marked up cost. So it's a nice little con game going on back then. Think about it, it's still going on today. When's the last time you went to a ballpark or an arena, right? You go to a concert, you go to a game. Do you buy their food and drinks? Of course you do. You have to. It's a, it's a con. They don't let you bring in your own stuff, and you can't buy it anywhere else. you got to buy whatever they're offering, and so they can jack up that price. You've got a family of four. You've got to take out a small loan to go to one of these things. It's ridiculous. Highway robbery, but what are you going to do? That's the way these travelers came into Jerusalem. Like, what are you going to do? They got these corrupt, monopolistic practices with cronyism and kickbacks. They were robbing worshipers by selling access to God. So you can see why that would tick off Jesus so much. He not only wanted to protect God's honor, he wanted to protect those who were coming to pray from being preyed upon. So by driving them out, he is declaring war on the whole system, the whole rigged game, on all these hypocritical leaders, these false shepherds who are exploiting God's sheep. He made enemies of the establishment right from the get-go, and from that time on, they were out to take him out. Now that made the disciples remember that Hebrew scripture prophecy of Psalm 69 that says, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal 
consume Jesus. And we need to be more zealous today and less apathetic for the things of God. We care way too much about the wrong things and don't care enough about the right things, what God cares about. We need to get a little bit more upset about the things of God and less upset about the ridiculous, silly little things that annoy us. That's why anger is so dangerous because we don't channel it right. We get angry over petty inconveniences instead of angry at the things that God gets angry about. That's why we're warned about anger because it's typically selfish. We're told to be slow to anger in James 1.20. Everybody say this out loud together with me. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Look, we can't help but feel emotions, but we don't let emotions control us. We control them. We are responsible for our responses. That's why we need to get rid of anger quickly because it is so destructive if it gets out of control. In fact, uh, Ephesians 4.26 says this. Everybody together again. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. All right, so Jesus is deeply disturbed, but he doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't get out of control. This isn't like the Hulk, you know, just hulking out and, and going crazy. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry because, you know, he, he loses control. Jesus has it all under control, never violent, unlike us. We can go off. I've told this story before. When I was a zealous Bible college freshman, I'd been in Bible college for two months, and I went back home around Halloween time to take out my new date, my new girlfriend, Penny, to go at our old high school's haunted trail. Every year they would do you know, a Halloween haunted trail, and it was just fun, and they'd spooky, and they'd jump out at you, harmless kind of stuff. But this year, they decided to go with a satanic theme. And as I'm walking through the trail with Penny, I'm seeing everywhere satanic pentagrams and the number 666 and everything evil, tarot card readers, you know, uh, uh, the occult, all kinds of stuff. And the further I get into it, the more my blood is boiling until I get to the final stop, which is to walk through the house of Satan. And as I'm walking through this house, there's posters on the wall that say 666 and pentagrams and, and all this stuff. And then I see it. I see a guy dressed like Jesus carrying his cross through the house of Satan. And folks, I lost it. I started running around ripping all the posters off the walls all over the place. Security had to come and pull me off the trail. Penny is still with me. Uh, I give her all the credit in the world. At least she knew right up front what she was getting into. Now, was there a better way I could have handled that? Yeah. Yeah. But it just so angered me that my alma mater, my tax-supported public high school, was promoting Satanism. It wasn't right. And so, yes, Jesus uses a whip. But he never whipped anybody. It never says that. He didn't get violent. doesn't say he whipped any animals. doesn't say he destroyed any property, which is a pretty good lesson for protests going on today, right? Keep it under control. Don't hurt anybody. Don't destroy anything. What do you think? You know, you probably saw on the news a while back, those Texas Border Patrol agents that got into all kinds of trouble because they were, they were seen with whips and they were trying to keep illegal immigrants from coming in across the river from Mexico. And it was put all over the media that these, these guys on horseback were whipping people. And oh my goodness, the media went crazy and politicians were saying they need to be fired, they need to be imprisoned. Well, you know, just a little while back, the courts cleared them of any wrongdoing. They were not whipping anybody. 
it wasn't right. What they were doing was trying to protect the United States, do their job like they were supposed to. The only thing they were guilty of was bad optics, okay? It didn't look good. That's what we're talking about with Jesus. For him to be running around with a whip, bad optics. But he wasn't doing anything wrong. Actually, what he was doing was right. He was trying to protect God's honor, protect God's people from this corruption. So Jesus' anger was righteous indignation. He was justified in it because he was angry over what God gets angry at. Yes, God gets angry. He gets rightfully wrathful over rebellion and injustice and evil. Oh, everybody knows the verse in the Bible. We all love this verse. God is love. Yep. But did you know there's another verse that says our God is a consuming fire? Yeah, we don't like that one. Another time, Jesus got angry at the religious leaders because he was in the synagogue at Capernaum and there in walked a man with a withered hand. And some Pharisees watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved in the hardness of their heart. Now that's something worth getting angry about, that kind of spiritual callousness and lack of love. That that anger didn't make Jesus hateful. It made him mournful. And of course, he goes ahead and heals the guy anyway. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to what? Destroy him. We will destroy you for this. Now, did Jesus have a right to heal on the Sabbath? Absolutely, because he's Lord of the Sabbath. And that's his house. That's his synagogue. I mean, come on, you come into my house, you start messing it up, we're going to have a problem. That's my house. You, you ever watch that TV show, Undercover Boss, where they will get the, the owner or the CEO and disguise them, put on a fake beard, fake glasses, maybe change their hair, put on a wig or something so nobody recognizes it, and the boss starts to work along the other employees to see how they really behave when the boss isn't there. And once... You know, now, if, come on, if they had been paying attention, if they had ever looked at their company's website, they would have known that's the boss. But they weren't. And so some of them get commended, some of them get reprimanded. Guess what? Jesus is owner and CEO of the temple. Now, when he walked in, most people didn't recognize him. Now, if they had been paying attention, maybe they would have. But you know that, that first miracle he did back in Cana? That was kind of undercover. It was kind of on the down low secret. Only a few people knew about it. But now... He's out in the public. Everybody's there. This is his big public reveal, and he reveals his authority. This is my house. This is my father's house. How dare you? Last time we saw him in the temple, he was just a boy, 12 years old, hanging out with the scholars, discussing the scriptures, asking questions. And they were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents came looking for him, he said, hey, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Well, now he's grown up, and he's back, and he's in charge, and he's cleaning house. Get out of my house. I kind of like it. I got to admit, I kind of like seeing Jesus go off like this. It's like, yeah, go get him, Lord, get him. But then I began to think, oh, man, that would be terrifying to be on the receiving end of that, and I know I deserve it sometimes. How terrifying it would be to fall into the hands of a wrathful God. I don't want that. 
1 Peter 4.17 says it's time for judgment to begin out in the culture, out in the world. No, it doesn't. At the household of God right here. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Folks, we are so quick to judge the world's sins, call them out, how awful, how it's terrible. And true enough, we should call out sin and evil, no doubt. But what about what's going on within the church? Come on, it's kind of a mess too. God wants us to be zealous for His house, His church. And if you're like me, I'm just too often disappointed and disillusioned at the nonsense and garbage I see going on in today's church. Not only all the false teaching, but the, the commercialization and the corruption in the name of God. Religion being used as a ripoff, financially manipulating people who are naively trusting these people claiming to be spiritual authorities all so they can get rich off religion. I'm so glad to see Jesus is still flipping tables today because if you pick up the news any day, it feels like there's another scandal, another exposure, all the way from the scandals we see in the Catholic Church to the, the ridiculous merchandising going on in Big Eva, the big evangelical industrial complex, to the ridiculous charismatic prosperity false prophets for profit. Jesus needs to drive out a few more people, I think, because they're still messing up people, manipulating them, and taking advantage. Don't be paranoid about all this. There's still a lot of good people out there, a lot of good churches, but have your radar up. Don't let yourself get taken advantage and don't send them any money. I get angry with the modern church for a lot of reasons because when ministry gets mixed up with money, it is dangerous. And of course, money is needed for ministry. There's nothing wrong with that. When the Jews brought their animals, worship and sacrifice go together. That's why we give our offerings. I'm, I'm glad we don't have to bring animals in here. We can just you know, do debit cards and cash and checks and stuff. That's great. But our offerings, every penny, should go for the Lord's work, not to enrich His servants. We're not here to profit off religious goods and services. And I feel the weight of that because I want to make sure that we protect God's honor in this church. That's why we have so many financial safeguards in place to safeguard the reputation of this church and do everything above board and avoid any criticism. That's why we don't do fundraising here. You know that. We don't do bingo. We don't do bake sales. We don't do rummage sales. We don't run festivals for profit. We don't do any of that stuff. We're not saying churches that do that are sinful. We're just saying it's second rate. Because if God's work is worth doing, that it ought to be worth generously giving to voluntarily. You shouldn't have to buy stuff to make that, that happen. We shouldn't tell people, come to our church and buy our stuff. We should be saying, we're here to give to you. Now, that doesn't mean we can't, like, have a vending machine out in the lobby and sell, sell you some, you know, sun chips and soda. But the truth is, we don't make any money off that. That's some other company doing that. Doesn't mean we can't sell T-shirts and swag, all right? We have a swag store online. We don't do that for profit. That's not even us. That's another business outside us that you go through. Yeah, some of you have been around long enough. You remember when we used to have a bookstore right over there? Right? And we sold books and CDs and all kinds of stuff over there. It was a good thing. It was nice. Uh, but it was never for profit. We just want to make sure people had access to that stuff. We, we shut it down several years ago because nobody buys books anymore. Everybody does e-books and nobody buys CDs anymore. In fact, if you're young, you don't even know what I'm talking about, right? What's a CD? So uh, those are good things, but we've got to always be careful of those things. And again, emphasize cleanse the church of commercialization and corruption. When Jesus did it, they demanded, what right do you have to do this? By whose authority? <laughs> so he points them to another sign. 
says, well, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it. Now, they took that literally. Come on, Jesus is a carpenter, but even, you know, building the temple in three days is a lot to ask of anybody. But he's not talking about the building. This is one of those things for those who have ears to hear. It has deeper spiritual meaning. He's talking about his physical body. And at the crucifixion, they will destroy his body, just like they plan to do. We will destroy him. That's what they did at the cross. And at his trial, false witnesses were brought in to misuse this claim against him. We heard him say he's going to tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. How dare he? How blasphemous. And even while he's hanging on the cross, they're mocking him with that claim. Mark 15, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Just wait. (laughs) Three days later, he raised that body up just like he said he would. You know, and that's, that's what he meant the whole time. Nobody understood it then, but later on the, the disciples said, oh yeah, we remember that. And they understood and they believed. Now while he's at this Passover festival in John 2, he's doing a whole bunch of signs. And so a whole bunch of people are believing in him, but there's still others who want to kill him. What are you going to do? Nothing will convince them. But even the ones who are believing are believing because of the miracles. So Jesus isn't very impressed with that, right? Because how hard is it to believe when somebody does a miracle right in front of your face? They believed in him. Jesus didn't believe in them. Why? Because he knew their hearts, and he knows our hearts too. He said it's only a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks after signs like that. And he also said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Guys, we walk by faith, not by sight. We don't demand signs from God. He's given us a sign. He's given us the resurrection, and that's enough, and that's plenty. That's all we should need. Jesus returned back to Cana where he did the water to wine thing in John 4, and he says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. And sure enough, many people never did believe in Jesus no matter what, and that's what got their temple literally destroyed. You know that, right? That a few years later, the temple in Jerusalem was actually torn down. About a week before his crucifixion, it's because they rejected Jesus. He warned them. He foretold this in Luke 19. Uh, you know, the last week of his life, he prophesied when they drew near and they saw the city, saw Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. If only you had received me as your revealed Messiah. Things would be different. But now they're hidden from your eyes. You refuse to see. For the days will come upon you when your enemies, the Romans, will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone on another. That's talking about the temple. And this time, when it is torn down, it's for good. The last time it was torn down by the Babylonians and they were carried off into exile, they got to rebuild it. This is permanent. There is no rebuilding of the temple. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. I'm here, right in front of your face. And he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold. Again, this is the second time now we're talking about. The first time didn't work. His rebuke did lead to repentance. They're still doing it. And saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And a few days later, as he's hanging on the cross, 
God rips the curtain of the temple in two, signifying I'm done with it. I'm done with the whole Jewish nation. I'm done with the whole Jewish system. I'm done with the whole old covenant of Moses. I've sent my son. He's given his life. He's the sacrificial lamb. He has instituted a new covenant, a better covenant. And so Israel will cease to exist. The nation will be destroyed. I'm finished with it. Now, I know some are looking for a third temple to be built. Some Jews are praying for it. Some Christians are expecting it. When Jesus returns, don't hold your breath because we don't need it anymore. We don't need to go back to that system. The church is God's Israel today. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. There is no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no longer need for a temple with an altar. There's no need for animal sacrifices. Jesus fulfills it. He's the Lamb of God. He's the great high priest. We have a new covenant. Jesus loves you. That's why He came. That's why He died for you. But that's how serious this is. How angry He is with sin. He wants you to be spared from judgment that's coming. He wants you to receive the mercy He offers because if you don't, all you have to expect is wrath. Deserved wrath. So He invites you to put your trust in Him. Repent of your sins. Be baptized into Christ and become His disciple. Let Him cleanse you of all that sin. Let Him drive the evil out of your life. Let Him make His home in your heart. Let Him make your body the temple of His Holy Spirit. If you have yet to make that decision, it's going to be the best decision you ever make. So text your name or, or email us if you're watching online. If you're here, you can come up in the next few moments when you hear the music playing and meet with one of these folks that are waiting for you to help you take your next step, to help you get baptized into Christ today. We're ready for that. To answer your questions, to pray with you. Maybe your next step is, is this is all new and I'm just going to come back next week and learn more about Jesus. And that's great. And we're... we're we finish with this section of John, and we're going to take a break from it for the holiday. Have the kids in here again. Elementary kids will be in here. and we'll, We're still going to be talking about Jesus. I'm going to be talking about Jesus' power over nature, His miracles of walking on the water and calming the storm and multiplying the fish and loaves. Hope you'll bring people with you for that. And then the following week after the holiday, I'm going to be taking about a seven-week break from preaching. I'm uh, going to have a variety of different speakers in here. You're going to enjoy that too. Getting back into the book of John again, chapters 3 through 6. We're going to call that Jesus in 4K. <laughs> if you're a Christian, this is a time when you can respond through communion. If you're not a Christian, this is just a quiet time for you to relax, reflect, pray, think. But when you come in, you get the cup, you get the bread, you get the juice that are reminders of Jesus' body and blood. This isn't an annual Passover festival. This is a weekly remembrance of our Passover lamb. Our sacrifice, Jesus. And you know, the early Christians were zealous to do this. In fact, it says in Acts uh, 2, verses 42 and 46, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. That's the Lord's Supper. And the prayers. Where? They didn't have church buildings. So where'd they go? Day by day, attending the temple together while it was still standing and breaking bread in their homes. Are we still as zealous as they are to prioritize this weekly for fellowship and prayer and studying Scripture and sharing in the Lord's Supper. Let's do that together right now as we pray. Father, we want to thank You for this time when we can share in communion and remember what 
it really means for us to live for Christ, that He's the center, He's the core of our, of our being, that we want to love what you love and hate what you hate and be happy about what you're happy about and be upset about what you're upset about, Lord. I pray that you would cleanse us, our minds, our souls, of our heart, of all the impurity, all the filth, all the, uh, the evil, the hatred, the, the lust, everything, God. Cleanse it out through your forgiveness. And cleanse out the church, Lord. Our church, your universal church, may our church be holy, dedicated to you. May it be clean and pure and represent you well. Lord, I pray for those who need to make the best decision of their lives today to receive Christ. I pray they'll reach out to you right now. In Jesus' name, amen. So as the music plays, you can come down and meet with these folks up here or sharing communion right where you are.